As we continue our series in the book of Ephesians, we come to chapter 5, where Paul commends a life of love and light. As we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, Ephesians is divided roughly into these two halves, chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. The first half having to do with, with doctrine or, or theology, and the second half having to do with devotion or ethics, or one way to put it is the first three chapters have to do with uh, the unsurpassable love of God for us. And the second three chapters have to do with the shape of our love for God. And, and it's that theme of light, as Paul brings the theme of light next to it, that become the two nodal points around which chapter 5 swirls. In chapter 4, Paul encouraged us. He said, put off your old self, like this exchange of identities, and, and put on your new self, which is created in the likeness of God. And if we were to survey the scriptures, there are almost no two words that you can find in Old or New Testament that more accurately describe the Almighty than love and light. So Paul says, walk in love. Walk as children of the light. It's an invitation to reflect the image of your creator. So first, walk in love. Verses 1 and 2, follow God's example. <laughs> we're following God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children... And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So everything that Paul goes on to say about sexual morality and sexual immorality comes under this banner of love. It, it comes under this, this supreme and ultimate Christian virtue. It was the Lord Jesus himself when he was asked who said, you know, the first, great, the first commandment is this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor. On those two commands hang all the law and the prophets. And it was the Lord Jesus himself who the night before he was betrayed and, and, and went to the cross, he said to his disciples, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. And so throughout the scriptures, like love is the supreme Christian virtue. And I think that's why Paul's statements in verses 3 through 6 are so incisive and so pointed, and they are that. <laughs> because I think when he looks at the world around him and the culture around him, he, he recognizes that what the world calls love is not always true love. Sometimes it's a form of lust. Where the self-sacrificial and self-giving nature of true love has morphed into the acquisitional and the possessional nature of self-gratification and self-satisfaction. And so in verses 3, Paul kind of identifies three terms that broadly signify various forms of sexual immorality. He says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. That's the word porneia or the root Greek word from which we get kind of pornography even today. There must not be any kind of impurity, he says, or this is really interesting, or of greed. The word is of covetousness, um, viewing others as people that exist for your own possession and for your own gratification. We'll come back to this term in a second. And, and then he says, because these things are improper for God's holy people. And in verse 4, he says, there should be no obscenity, no foolish talk, or no co coarse jesting. So those, those three terms there are kind of like Paul saying, first of all, you should not be even talking about certain things that are just shameful to be talking about in that way. And then he says, secondly, there are certain things that you should be talking about, but you're talking about it in a really unwise and unhelpful and actually harmful way. 
And then third, he says, you're using the wit and even the humor and the intelligence that God has, has given you to make suggestive comments and, and underhanded innuendos. And, and that's actually belittling, belittling to people who are made in his image. So when we kind of step back and we look at verses three and four next to each other, what we see is Paul's not only naming specific kind of sexual sins from a lot of different angles, he's also naming ways of thinking and ways of talking that create a culture or an atmosphere in which particular sexual sins are tolerated. Now, it, the fact is, is that it's not news to anybody that we kind of lived in a, in a, in a sex-soaked culture. <laughs> that's, that's not news to anybody. But, but it's important for us to realize that this isn't just the product of the 1960s and the sexual revolution. Like, Paul, Paul saw all this stuff in his day, too. Uh, for some in Paul's day, sexual expression and exploration was a form of social liberation. Uh, for others, it was a personal and religious experience of enlightenment. And for others, it was just like a brute necessity of bodily desires, a transaction of pleasure, and nothing more. And if you kind of survey the cultural dialogue about sexuality in our own day, you can see this kind of conflicting tides and currents of how to think about the fact that God has made us as sexual creatures. Now, I, I read a bunch of articles from Canada, from the US, from the UK, uh, the last couple of weeks, trying to get a sense of like, what is, the, what is the cultural tide on this? And I saw two things. On the one hand, there were those who said, things have gotten out of hand, we're in a, a sex-obsessed culture, and it's hurting us. Interestingly, there was an article that was written by a man who has, a gay man, who actually was looking at the millennial culture, so my generation, basically. <laughs> I think I just sneak in there. And um, uh, he was basically um, looking at us and saying, um, your generation has become so sexualized. Like, your portrayal of, of women in popular media is more sexualized than ever. Porn is more accessible than it ever has been. You have dating apps such as Tinder so that you, you, like you can easily just hook up with strangers that you don't know. And, and there was this man saying, like, you want love and intimacy, but all the ways in which you are inhabiting this culture is actually blocking you from knowing true relationship and being known in true relationship. I found this so fascinating that this, that this man was actually writing about this on quite a public scale. But, but then you look, there's, there's others that are coming at it from a different angle, and they're saying that our sexual liberation and the sexual revolution of the 60s is not yet actually complete. So what we need to do is foster a freer and more creative sexual imagination. And there was this one quote that I came across that just, it just struck to the core of it. They were, they were making this statement in a good sense, but to me it just seemed to be indicative of where we're at. They said, sex is no longer a morally problematic or unproblematic act. It is merely wanted or not wanted. So sex is no longer morally problematic or unproblematic. It is just wanted or unwanted. And so as I kind of look at this culture, you see that there are actually different currents and tensions and conflicting narratives about how it is that we are created as sexual creatures and how it is that we respond appropriately to that. And for any Christian, the question is, how do we navigate all this well? How does God speak into it? Words of truth and grace. I think the key here is found in the distinction that Paul makes between coveting and thanksgiving. Between coveting and thanksgiving. Coveting desires and seeks to acquire and possess what is not mine. 
But thanksgiving expresses gratitude to the creator for what he has already given. So if we apply this to sexual immorality, I think it might go something like this. Lord, you have invited me not to covet that man or covet that woman, but to be content with the man or the woman that you have given me and to give thanks if I'm married. Or if I'm not married, Lord, you have invited me to be content with the particular opportunities and spaces that singleness affords me to serve in the kingdom of God in a unique way, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. So I think that's one of the positive kind of invitations of the passage. Does that kind of make sense? Are you following me there a little bit on the distinction between coveting and thankfulness? Thankfulness is identified by, by Paul as the antidote to lust because it, it, it invites us into a life of contentment in what God has given rather than a coveting and a grasping after what he hasn't given. Uh, last week in our adult discipleship class, Dennis Ockham talked on Benedictine spirituality, basically Christian monasticism. And he made this really fascinating comment about um, the ancient Christian notion of chastity. Um, he said, chastity is not just a negative concept. That's the way we tend to think about it today. Uh, chastity is not, not just like the uh, abstinence, basically. He said chastity in the historic Christian sense was a positive Christian ethic of honoring God by honoring one's body and honoring other people's bodies that were made in his image. And I think we might see a similar thing here in Paul. Christian sexual ethics is not merely about abstaining from, from sexual immorality, but it's about honoring the God who created the body both ours and others. And this little word that Paul uses for Eucharist, I mean, for Thanksgiving, is the same Greek word that means Eucharist. It's, it, we come to the Eucharist and we take bread and wine and we say, God, these were your gifts to us. We made something of them and we offer them to you in Thanksgiving. God gives us bodies and he gives other people bodies and we offer them to him in Thanksgiving. So to recap, in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, walk in love. In verses 3 and 4, Paul describes what it looks like when love is distorted into lust in various forms. And then in verses 5 and 6, Paul issues a loving pastoral warning to those who choose and continue to choose lust over love. He says in verses 5 and 6, For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, what's Paul saying and what's he not saying? Or, or more broadly, what are, we, what are we to make of this tough teaching about God's judgment? I think a lot could be said here, so I'm going to make a few observations kind of specifically and then make a few more observations more generally. <laughs> This warning speaks to those who have willingly given themselves over to this way of living without repentance, not those who have ever sinned sexually. I mean, if you just think of Paul, for example, I mean, not Paul, but if you just think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, like, whoever looks at a person with, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them in their heart, then it's kind of like, which of us has not committed adultery at some point? 
what Paul is saying is that this is a regular and habitual way of life that people have given themselves over to without any sense of repentance or conviction. And he says, there is this sense of the wrath of God who comes upon that. Now, this language of wrath of God sounds really, really intense, and it, it is in the Bible. It's not, <laughs> it, the wrath of God is a serious thing. But I think one of the most helpful places to understand this is when you go to Romans chapter 1, Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed uh, kind of against to those that, that reject the truth of God. And he says something really interesting. He says, how does this wrath of God look? And he says, this wrath of God actually looks like God handing people over to their desires. So in this case, it's God allowing people to do what they want to do, even if what they want to do is harmful to their humanity and their flourishing. So there's the sense here in which, which Paul is saying that God is allowing people to do what they want to do, and in that, there is this dynamic of his wrath. Second, this warning that he speaks, he speaks even though it's a really sober warning, he speaks in an environment of humility and hope and healing. So notice um, the humility in verse eight. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So, so, so Paul's kind of talking to people and, and, and he's saying like, you aren't totally distant from this way of life. You, you actually were living this way of life. Um, and now you're light in the Lord. So, so don't lambast people as if you've never partaken of those same sins. There's a sense of humility, but there's also this sense of hope. And we, we just saw that in verse two, it begins with a sense of the love of Christ, which gave himself for us a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to God. I remember working in Canada. I had the opportunity of working with, um, these, uh, these kind of recovery groups for sexual and relational healing and addiction. I'm with a number of young men. So I got to work with groups of young men who are pretty much for the most part trying to become free from addiction to pornography that had been like years long and deep. It was an intense thing to do, but an honoring thing to do. And I remember how the tension would build in these men. I remember when somebody new would walk in the doors in a weekly meeting for the first time, you could just see the internal angst on their face. The sense of like, the guilt has built up and the shame has built up in secrecy for so long, I just have to tell somebody, it has to come out in the light. Yet at the same time, this absolute gut-wrenching fear, how are people going to respond to me and what are they going to think of me when they really know me? And I remember there was this seasoned pastor who partnered with me in running these groups on a weekly basis, and I loved watching him because every time a new person walked in the door, he would go straight up to them, he would look them in the eyes without flinching before he even knew their name, <laughs> and he would say, there's hope for you. And that's the only thing he would say to him. He would just say, there's hope for you. And the number of people for whom those were the exact words they needed to hear and nothing more. There's hope because Jesus has loved you and he's given himself for you. And then there's also this context of healing, which we're gonna get into in a second. It comes with the image of light. Light comes and it not only exposes the darkness, but it heals it and it transforms it and it turns it into light. So we're gonna get there in a second, but before we do, I think some of you may still have a nagging question in your head, if you're anything like me. 
Like, what do we make of this touch, tough teaching about God's judgment? What do we make of it personally, pastorally, theologically? And, and I think it's helpful to step back for a few, few moments, and, and I'm just going to say six theses on divine judgment. <laughs> it, it's a weird thing to say, but here it is. First, justice, which we all want. In the Bible, it's a good thing. It's the shalom and flourishing of God's creation. Justice requires some form of judgment in a fallen and sinful world, which deals with evil and realigns God's creation with the good purposes for which he created it. So justice, in some sense, requires some form of realigning and judgment. The second, in some sense, humans choose their own judgment. That's a deep theological thicket, (laughs) the nature of human agency, but in some sense, human beings choose their own judgment. Third, when God judges, he does so through tears because his heart's desire is for life and not death. He's like Jeremiah the prophet. He's the weeping prophet. Fourth, the Lord is patient with people and he gives them time to repent and grow. I love this image. Karl Barth has this beautiful explanation of divine patience where he says, patience is God's giving to humanity spaciousness to become who he designed for them to become. He doesn't demand it of them all at once. He gives them spaciousness to turn and to grow into the fullness of his image. So God is patient. Fifth, there is a lot of mystery around judgment and we should not claim to know more than we do. God is the judge and we are not. There's mystery. And sixth and finally, on that day, I think there are going to be a lot of surprises. (laughs) The first will be last, and the last will be first. Because one of the things that the cross shows us is that the God's no to humanity's sin is never the last word because Easter Sunday comes a few days later. And Easter Sunday is God's yes to humanity. If the cross is God's no to the way they've sought self-destruction and isolation and alienation, then the resurrection is God's yes to his creatures. So Paul says in verses 7 through 14, walk as children of the light. God is light. His resurrection light shines on us and in us. So walk in the light. Uh, Lucas was giving me this image lately of of the light shining in a garden. (laughs) And one of the things a light does in a garden is it provides warmth and growth and nourishment to the leaves and the plants. At the same time that it exposes any pests or rot or mildew or weeds that need to be dealt with. And it's this double dynamic that we see throughout Ephesians 5, verse 7. Do not be partners with them, Paul says. It's a relational thing. But then verse 11, it's it's a deed and work thing. Do not partake of their unfruitful works. And then verse 12, it's, it's a verbal thing. Don't even speak about it. But Paul here doesn't commend some sort of withdrawal from the world. He says instead, expose the works of darkness. So verses 13 and 14, everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it is said, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. 
So I think the dynamic of what Paul is unpacking for us is that the Christian response to darkness is not simply to run, but to reveal. Things which are done in secret and in isolation behind closed doors, which are so many of the things Paul's talking about here, they have to be exposed. They have to be revealed. They have to be brought to the light in order for forgiveness and healing and transformation to actually do its work. If, if they just remain secret and hidden, it's a non-starter. And Satan has people right where he wants them in a place where they are alone and isolated and he can continue to heap up condemnation and shame and guilt. So Paul wants us to learn that the exposing of our sins is actually healthy and wholesome for living a truly human life. It's kind of like a doctor. The doctor can't suggest a way of healing (laughs) unless the full diagnosis is known. So I think there's lots of spiritual formation questions and pastoral questions that arise out of this for us. Like, what does this look like in my life? (laughs) How does this take shape in community? Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great quote where he says, confession has to take in place in community to some extent because it's my brother or sister who's going to have a clearer view of the grace of God at work in my life than I will often in those moments. So we need to hear the word of forgiveness from the community. What are healthy ways of of leaning into this? And and what are unhealthy ways of leaning into this? I mean, each of us could tell stories about how we've seen this done well in the church, and each of us could probably tell a lot more stories about ways in which we've seen it not done not well in the church, right? I mean, how do we respond to people? Or how have we been responded to when, when we've taken that first big step and really been honest about who we are? I love the logic of this passage. It says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For for anything that becomes visible is light. So the logic is, is not, okay, you're exposed by the light, and now you're condemned, now you're shamed, now you're ostracized. The logic is, you're exposed by the light, and because you're exposed by it, you actually become light now. You're healed and you're transformed. And as I was thinking about this, I was just thinking like, man, isn't this the sort of place that we hope to be as a church? Where somebody could walk in our doors and, and, and say, because I was exposed, <laughs> because I was really honest about my sin in this place, I was actually able to move deeper into the life of God without feeling alienated. And I think that's part of the irony is, is that It's the sin and the secrecy in our lives that actually alienates us from God and alienates us from one another, but we worry that it's being exposed and honest about it that's going to alienate us in the end. I wonder if one of the things that Paul is pressing us on is to say this love that I'm inviting you to walk in and, and this light that I'm inviting you to walk in, it's a love that heals and forgives it's a light that makes new and transforms. And so he's, he's inviting us to experience this love of Christ, which simultaneously convicts us and it forgives us. This light, which simultaneously reveals who we are and heals us. And, and it's, it's as if he wants us to have this image of you're in a spiritual slumber. And when you awake from that spiritual slumber, what you discover is that the sun has already risen And the sun is already shining on you. The sun is already breaking through your bedroom window. The sun is already bathing you in his warmth. 
with a love that forgives and a light that heals. So I wonder if a question for you for this week is, is simply this to consider before the Lord. Lord, where in my life would you like to shine your light? And where in my life would you like to remind me of your love? I would like to end with this little prayer from somebody named Jerry Weber. It's based on Psalm 51, which was David confessing to God, <laughs> bringing things to light after his adultery with Bathsheba. And Jerry Weber paraphrases the prayer like this. He says, shine the searching light of your love, O Lord, into every corner and crevice, crack and closet of my life. Until my inner darkness is named for what it really is and brought to your healing light. Lord, bathe me in that healing light. My brothers and sisters, if you're a place where you're struggling, <laughs> there's some sin that nobody knows about, and even its very secrecy is, feels debilitating and bonding to you, I just want you to hear right now, there's hope for you. Christ's light does shine on you. And his love has already given his life for you. So feel free to come to him. Come to the table. Come to the light. I say these things to you, my brothers and sisters, as a sinner with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.